Okay? There we go. I'm on the mic. Hello. Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. Thanks for coming. Thank you. <laughs> We're going to get started. We have a really fun night in store here at Golden Beer Talks. Thank you for joining us. We're going to get a couple quick announcements. First, we like to start and end with gratitude, so we want to make sure that we recognize the awesome staff at the Windy Saddle, because they treat us so right. Also, golden.com for always supporting and promoting our events and our community. Go to the website of golden.com. Take a look. Sign up. There's all kinds of amazing information about what's going on in our community, and you can even have it delivered directly to your inbox. So something to think about there. We also want to talk a little bit about our speaker from last month. Ken Regelson is appearing on the 30th of this month as a speaker here locally at the Sustainability Night at the Mountaineering Center. So if you weren't able to see him last month, or even if you were, perhaps you want to check that out. It uh, starts at 5 p.m. At the, at the Mountaineering Center on the 30th. It's a Wednesday night at the Mountaineering Center. There's lots of other exciting stuff going on with that, and there's a poster in the back if you want to take a look. Who's the keynote speaker? The keynote speaker is Patty Limerick, the state historian. Patty Limerick, <laughs> she's wonderful. <laughs> she is known to be pretty entertaining. Not as entertaining as Dr. Dale. Our next introduction, we're going to bring up Dr. Jim Dale. He's a remarkable human being, but an excellent auctioneer. You have been fortunate enough to appear at our one event each year when we raise a little bit of money so we can buy beer and food for our speakers. And so uh, Dr. Dale is going to come up here, and he's going to help you think about the joys of the very special table, which is an offering that we make once a year. This is your only chance to get it. It involves you and three of your friends. It's a white tablecloth, candle, light affair. Dinner's provided. Drinks are provided. Drinks, evening, too? Drinks are provided. Wow. Wow. It's an evening of joy here at the Golden Beer Talks of your choice. So, yeah. And Dr. Dr. Jim back here has purchased the very special table. <laughs> Come on up, Dr. Dale. Okay, so did you get that? So, Jim, you want to start at 75? I got 75, give me 80. I got 75, give me 80 and 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80. You got 80 here, 85. Jim, give me 85 and 5 and 5. I got, I got 80 here, give me 5. I got 80, give me 5 and 5 and 5 and 5 and 5. I got 80, give me 85. I got 80, give me 85. I got 85, now 90. I got 85, now 90. I got 90, now 95. I got 95, now 100. I got 100 over here, give me 5. I got 105, give me 10 and 10 and 10 and 10 and 10. I got 105, give me 10 and 10 and 10 and 10 and 10. I got 105, give me 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. Give me 10? Yep. No, I got 115. 115? No. I got 110 right beside you. I got 110, 15, 15, 15. Jim, you all done? You all out? I got 110, 15, 15. 120. I got 120 and 20 and 20 and 20 and 20. Give me five. I got 120. Give me five and five and five and five and five. I got 120. Give me five. 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 Give me
I got 25, give me 30. I got, I got 25, give me 30 and 30 and 30 and 30. I got 130 now, 135. I can get one, I got one 30 over there, 135, don't give me 145. I got 135, not 40. I got 135 and 40 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 now, who did I sell it to? One thirty-five for you. Would you take one for one thirty-five? Sure. She would take one for one thirty-five. Jim, would you take a table for one thirty-five? All right. Is that enough? That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Your support comes in your, the form of your presence, so that additional support is deeply appreciated. Thank you very much. And we'll come and get your names and figure out how to set up what months you want to show up. We're booking our speakers already for 2017, so we've already got some good options out there coming together. Awesome. I uh, think I'm going to bring up our Deputy Chief of Mission Does any, to talk about the beer. Awesome. Here comes a, our beer ambassador is on a diplomatic mission of some sort or another, no doubt drinking a beer right now. So his uh, yeah. deputy chief of mission is here to talk about the Mountain Toad beers tonight. Almost certainly, but it's called a business trip. He's in Indianapolis. Okay, our two beers tonight are both from Mountain Toad. We have a Dunkelweizen, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, which is a German dark wheat ale, Dunkel's Weiss beer, uh, they are smooth and sweet. Note of clove and banana create subtle spice flavors perfect for fall. Our other one is a Pandan Porter. This robust porter was brewed with leaves from the mighty Pandemus tree, Pandanus tree, um, imparting subtle notes of vanilla and toffee with hints of East Asian spice. Now, because unlike Frank, I'm not actually a beer scholar and all I can do is read what Mountain Toad gives me, I go through and I give beer events. So I've gone through all the breweries, and to begin with, Golden City Brewery, which started our uh, craft run 23 years ago, just celebrated their 23rd anniversary on um, uh, October 31st. They always have their birthday, and they always serve beer at 1993 prices on their anniversary, so that's something to keep in mind next Halloween. Uh, our newest brewery, New Terrain, uh, is going to start a new terrain running club on the 17th. Uh, every Thursday at 6 p.m., people are going to meet and they're going to run two to four miles on North Table Mountain and then come back and drink. <laughs> on uh, the 25th, which is Black Friday, they're going to introduce a... Get a little uh, rowdy here, folks. <laughs> On the 25th, which is Friday, they're going to be introducing a uh, Black Planet, which is an Imperial Belgium Porter. Moving on to Barrels and Bottles, on the 23rd, they're going to be re-releasing the Big Labruski, which is an Imperial Golden Milk Stout, which was very popular. Uh, on the 11th of December, they're going to be celebrating Festivus for the rest of us. For those who didn't know, which I didn't, I didn't, I didn't watch Seinfeld, but apparently everyone else in Golden Beer Talks does. Um, 
that's a, an event where they all get together and complain. And I found that by going to Google and typing that in, I could see a little YouTube that showed me the event, so I could see everyone sitting there complaining. So <laughs> kind of looks like fun. So that's on the 23rd. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's December 11th. Okay, Cannonball Creek. The big news there is that they won two gold medals at the Great American Beer Fest. Yeah. One of them was Trump hands. I remember when they first put that on their website, I thought, what a strange picture. They had a picture of beer and these tiny little baby hands <laughs> holding a glass of beer. Anyway, that was one of them that won a gold medal. Holladaily Brewing Company is going to start a uh, brewery boot camp starting on the 19th of November, where you get together at about 10 in the morning and exercise and then drink. <laughs> And finally, um, this Thursday is Thirsty Thursday, sometimes called Thirsty Third Thursday, at the Mountaineering Museum, where you can get together and drink and get free admission to um, the Mountaineering Museum. And that's it for Beer News in Golden. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sensing a theme with the exercising and the beer. Indeed, you must be in Golden when... We're going to bring up our speaker. Rick is a, very, is a veteran ski patrol from Loveland. He's an exceptional human being. He's going to talk about Know Before You Go for Avalanche Safety. If you didn't get a chance to watch the video that's on the Know Before You Go website, I really do recommend watching it because it's informative, but it's also just beautiful. So if you haven't had that opportunity, even after this talk, I really re recommend taking a look at it. Rick Rubin. Thank you very much. Uh, in keeping with the theme of exercise and beer, don't forget that Festivus includes the feats of strength yeah. as well. So my name is Rick Rubin. I work at the Loveland Ski Patrol. This will be my 27th season as a ski patroller. Uh, I started there as a volunteer. I now work on the paid patrol. And one of my goals or one of my tasks there is avalanche education for everyone at the ski area. That includes the patrollers, the lift maintenance, and anyone else who's interested in that. Uh, I got started with No Before You Go two years ago when it came to Colorado. This program began in Utah 10 years ago as an outreach to middle school students. In and around Salt Lake City, there is a large population that ski tours regularly. And younger and younger kids were beginning to go out and tour, but without any sort of knowledge as to what they were doing, where they were going. So a gentleman at the Utah Avalanche Center began this program. It's now reached over 100,000 people student-wise in Utah and is a PE credit in the Utah school system. Two years ago, it came to Colorado via some grants, and everybody who did this last year was given $100 to do with what they wished. Everyone either turned it back into the Colorado Avalanche Information Center or used it otherwise to do something avalanche-related. I gave 27 of these talks last year, and my $2,700 went to the high school memorial fund for my friend Kyle, who died December 2010 in an avalanche. So I continue to do these talks for that reason, and because I want people to understand that you can go out in the mountains any time in the winter and have a pretty good time and avoid avalanches as you wish. So, know before you go. As Whitney mentioned, there is a video that goes along with this. Typically, this presentation is about an hour. 
and the video was 15 to 17 minutes, and then I filled the rest of the time blabbering away like so. Uh, the video is designed for younger students, so the music is uh, quite loud, uh, has, has a very strong bass beat, but the, the video itself is very informative, very interesting. So if you get a chance, have a, have a look at it. It does go quite well with the talk. Uh, that said, I won't show it tonight, so I'll go ahead and get started. I want to make sure my volume is on. Because there are a couple of videos in this presentation, really short ones, that show things. So I mentioned why I do this. It is not possible to do without funding from these organizations. These family foundations, both of these family foundations, uh, had uh, individuals in the family pass away in avalanches and decided to do something constructive in their memory, as well as avalanche centers in the U.S. and Canada, and backcountry access based in Boulder and Erie, which is based in Gunnison, Crested Butte. So who needs to know about avalanches? So is anyone here a skier? How about a snow machiner? I am never the only one of those. Okay. Anybody climb in the winter? How about snowboarders? If you're out in the mountains in the wintertime, knowing about avalanches is a pretty important thing. Uh, much like here in the West where we spend a lot of time running rapids, we need to learn how to run and swim them. If you're in the mountains, learning about avalanches is a very good thing for you to know about. So. They're very powerful, violent events, and escaping them is next to impossible. As we'll see here, this person skiing up along to a little ridge decides, not even far from a road, to go ahead and ski down to that road cut. And you'll notice the moment that the avalanche begins and they're caught in it, they pick up speed at a rate that is equivalent to driving down the highway at 60 to 70 miles an hour. Effectively no way to get out of these things. This is what it looks like under the snow from this gentleman's GoPro video camera. And you notice he's not just jumping out of the snow and high-fiving his pals and saying, that was radical or something like that, because it's not that way. You hear him barely under the snow trying to make noise. So, In the United States, since 1950, Avalanche fatalities by state. Typically in the U.S., there are about 30 avalanche fatalities every year. In North America, roughly 42. And you'll notice since 1950, the leader of the pack, by a long way, is Colorado. There's various reasons for that, but since we live here and we recreate there, knowing about avalanches is a good thing for all of us. Fatalities as they occur typically break down three to one. Roughly three out of four people who pass away die from asphyxiation, so they suffocate under the snow. And the other 25% die from trauma. That's not to say people who suffer and die from asphyxiation don't suffer trauma. They pretty much always do. You'll find people bent and shaped like Gumby, which is not something you want to see. So knowing this, we'll come back to that later, there's opportunities to reduce these fatalities. Now, 90% of incidents that occur are triggered by the victim themselves or someone in their group. So this is a good news, bad news situation for us. Bad news is you triggered an avalanche and now you're in one and you've seen what it can look like and what it can feel like. 
But the good news can come in two parts. One is, if you're triggering it and you're in a group, there's people that can be there to help you. The other part of that good news is, you start here and take your education further, you can learn how to avoid avalanches and not be in them in the first place. So this is your first step in that direction. So it's a five-step process. We do this from people who are rank beginners to people who are, for lack of a better term, experts. There was a gentleman from the 50s who said the avalanche doesn't care that you're an expert, and it doesn't. But everybody follows this process. Know before you go. Five steps. The first two we always do before we ever leave home. Get the gear and get the training. The next three steps we do every day before we go in the backcountry. Get the forecast, get the picture, and get out of harm's way. Now, as somebody who spends roughly 120 days a year on the snow, and about 65 of those are in the backcountry, this is the procedure I follow every single time. So we'll come back to this, but before we do, what's an avalanche? Tell me what an avalanche is, anyone? Sliding snow. Sliding snow, snow that moves down a mountain. Does it have to be on a mountain? So think back to that graphic of where avalanches have occurred in the U.S. There was one death in North Dakota. That's from what's called a roof avalanche. So someone was buried by a roof avalanche, snow coming off of a roof and buried them. Next time you go to Leadville, uh, one, two streets down from where the uh, brewery is just off of the main, main drag on Harrison, there's a church with a roof like this. Go look at that church and there's signs on both sides that says, caution, avalanches. And people have been caught there by roof avalanches. We're going to talk about snow sliding down a mountain, but avalanches can happen in a lot of different ways. So where do they occur? What kind of terrain do they occur in? Well, we said it's snow sliding down a mountain, so typically that's the case. Is this an obvious set of avalanche paths? Does it look like avalanches would occur there? This is US 6 Loveland Pass. Pretty obvious. This is that snow mass. This is just outside the ski area. A person was caught and killed in that little slide. That is about 25 vertical feet of relief. Not very much, but quite steep. Yes, and steepness is a factor. We'll come to that soon. Excellent straight person, thank you. Fatal avalanche occurred here in Big Cottonwood Canyon, right off a road cut. Also very steep, but it doesn't look like much when you're just driving along. Here's a ski area. This is Sun Valley. So this can happen inside an area too. Wherever there's a mountain and there's snow, you could have an avalanche. Most accidents that we see occur outside ski resort boundaries where nobody's actively working to control snow or mitigate it. Inside ski area, and these are all pictures from the Loveland ski area, people do a lot of work to make sure that you have safe skiing and riding experience inbounds from throwing hand charges, so that's a live two-pound explosive attached to a rope, to using what's called an avalanche which shoots charges from a distance where we can make an avalanche happen and have it not come down on us or anyone else. And sometimes you get exceptional results, yeah. stuff that you didn't expect. So that's me, and this person back here is a six-foot-two-inch individual. These are really big blocks of snow. So you don't want to be anywhere near those sorts of things. So this is what goes on inside a ski area. 
In the last 10 years, 50% of all fatalities in the state have occurred by people leaving a ski area boundary. So they'll be somewhere inbound, they'll exit the ski area via a gate, ideally, onto typically forest service land or BLM land, and recreate outside on the other side of a rope. On the other side of that rope is like the Stone Age. There is nobody to control it and rescue may not come for you. So you have to be your own avalanche forecaster and your own rescuer if necessary. That's why you start coming to talks like this and progress to other courses so you can learn more about how to do that. So avalanches will come in any kind of shape and size from large to small and lots of different types. This here is what's called a wet slide avalanche. So you can see how this snow has large balls that look quite wet and you can see how the snow has been scraped. This is effectively a large slow mass moving downhill and you can see what it does to trees. If you're caught in one of these, they, you're not walking away from it, it just squishes you. To something like a big soft slab, this is on Mount Trelease right outside the Loveland ski area. These big blocks of snow will knock you down, carry you quite a ways. This is an avalanche that went across a lake outside of the Eldora ski area, up near Yankee Boy Basin, or uh, I'm sorry, Yankee Doodle Lake is where that was. Somebody mentioned steepness. Who was that? Tell me about steepness. What does that mean? Well, I saw in the video, Rick, that, uh, <laughs> that a steepness over 30 degrees is much more treacherous. Okay. So steepness is one of the factors we always consider when deciding to go onto a slope or not. Zero to 30 degrees, so less than 30 degrees, typically is not steep enough to slide. Very few avalanches in this range of slope angle. For those of you that visit ski areas, this would be green runs, for example. 30 to 45 degrees is sort of the magic zone where most avalanches do occur when you historically look at data. 30 to 45 degrees is great skiing. That is typically intermediate to advanced skiing and riding in a ski area. Uh, in the backcountry, it's easy to find slopes like this. Above that, most things are too steep to slide. Snow doesn't stick and it just kind of sloughs off. There are exceptions to this. Think about the big spines on mountains in Alaska where stuff just sticks. That's why heli skiing in Alaska is so great because that stuff is super steep, really fun to ski at high rates of speed because the snow just keeps you right there, and it does, but it doesn't slide off. Around here, in this zone, we don't really see any avalanches in Colorado anyway. So steepness, big factor, very important. Keep this in mind. Terrain is the other factor. One thing we teach in classes all the time is when snow is the question, terrain is the answer. You can always adapt and go to different terrain. And for us, we want to think about the terrain that we're interested in being, what's over, being in, what's over ahead of us, and what we are connected to. So for example, this nice bowl, and you can see ski tracks in it, looks like a great place to go skiing. And in fact, it is. This is outside of Crested Butte. It's a great place to go skiing. But we also need to worry about what we're connected to, because if we're down here in a gentler slope, and we undercut a slope and trigger an avalanche from above, where does it go? It goes on top of us. If it runs really big, we might be on something that normally doesn't get caught, but we're connected to it. 
So we care a lot about steepness and terrain. When we connect those two factors, we can talk about consequences of getting caught. So what's the consequence of being in a gully or a sharp transition in terrain? What might happen if an avalanche occurred? You can get buried. Why is a gully or a sharp transition more likely to bury you, be worse for you? It's a great collection point. It's, it, it would be deeper if, it, if snow fell into here than it would be on a flatter slope. Does that make sense? How about trees? It's a consequence of going through trees. Trees are good. So, yeah, tree skiing is great, but trauma is a big factor here. If you're moving downhill at 60 to 70 miles an hour, that's like a whole lot of people standing by with baseball bats to take a swing at you. Not a good thing. Cliffs, rocks, and crevasses. This ought to be fairly obvious. Nobody wants to go over a cliff unless they're really trying to, or get cheese gratered over rocks, or if you ski where there's a lot of glacier, glaciated terrain, Pacific Northwest going under crevasse. Who knows how deep they are? And if snow covers you. And lastly, bodies of water. That is a block of ice that was part of a frozen lake after an avalanche hit it and broke it apart. So that is a good two to three feet thick, exceptionally heavy, and that's the power of, of snow moving down a hill. So we want to know how avalanches form so we can start thinking about how we might deal with the snow we're going to be walking on. So this little video shows us that snow falls in different layers at different times and different rates. We might get wind, we might get a lot of snow, we might get clear cold nights, might get some more snow. All of that's pretty interesting and if you're a snow scientist it's cool. But if you're out for a tour and you're just walking on top of the snow, what does that mean to you? Are you thinking about what's under your feet? No, generally not. It's just snow. But you have to think about what's under your feet. All that snow falls in different layers, different amounts, different weather conditions. And the layers and how they interact, how they coexist, are what we care about. And what we're interested in is what we call strong over weak. Strong over weak looks like this. Very strong snow. Can't put your hand into it. Whereas here's some snow that looks like large grains of sugar in your hand. So strong over weak. Does this snow down here look like it's very supportive? It's not. It's still managing to hold this up, but if you hit it in the wrong spot, this big slab is going to come downhill. So how do we pay attention to these layers? Well, we need to be a bit of a detective, and we have to dig, much like we just saw person had dug a hole. These lovely little crystals, they're beautiful. They look like shining diamonds on a clear day. They grow on clear, cold nights. We cover them up. We forget they're there. We go out skiing, we hit the wrong spot, and we cause an avalanche. So we've got to care about what's underneath our feet, and this is the start of that. That's no before it, so we reach no before you go, the five-step process. What can you do to start with? Well, the first two things are get the gear and get the training. These are the things we do before we ever leave the house. So let's first talk about gear. Gear relates to the probability of survival under the snow in this way. This is a graph of people buried versus how long they've been buried from 
Canada. You'll notice time along the bottom here. The magic number is roughly 15 minutes. Your probability of survival from zero to 15 drops dramatically and then goes asymptotically to zero after roughly 15 minutes. So ideally you have at most 15 minutes under the snow, assuming you weren't killed by trauma. So this is where gear comes in because someone has got to find you and dig you out. So this is mandatory or essential rescue gear. And notice that it is not called safety gear, it is called rescue gear. This doesn't make you safe if you carry it. So at least these three things. Transceiver helps you locate someone who's buried or if you are the buried person, helps you be located. The probe is used to precisely pinpoint a victim's location. So we're gonna probe around in the snow when we feel a body. And you might ask yourself, how do you know it's a body? You know, they're spongy. <laughs> Have somebody probe you sometime. You, <laughs> you are spongy. And then lastly, you need a shovel to dig them out. So this is mandatory, beacon shovel probe. Other things to carry that we recommend highly, an avalanche airbag pack helps you stay on the surface. We're gonna see how that works in a moment. An Avalon, this device was developed by a doctor in Utah, tested extensively in Utah and Colorado. You wear this on your body, you put this mouthpiece in your mouth, and snow being roughly 90% air, even in compacted form, allows you to suck air out of the snow and exhale out your back where you will not rebreathe and form an ice mask over your mouth. And lastly, you'll see these days in clothing and helmets, something called a RECO chip or device. This is generally used in recovery later on uh, because to bring the device to use to search for these, these little chips typically doesn't happen unless it's a focused rescue group or a ski patrol. So the, the transceivers can't see these? So the transceivers do not see these. Briefly, the way this works is there's a chip, there's a diode in there. And I send a signal, it hits the diode that's on your body, the signal is reflected back to me at twice the frequency, and it's a direct line, and I can walk a straight line to you. But you must have one of those RECO devices in order to make it work. They come these days in clothes all the time. You can no longer buy them and stick them on things. People used to buy these and put them on their skis, and then you'd go searching for somebody, and you'd, fi you'd find their ski here and their bodies down there. So RECO decided that wasn't a good use of its resource. This is an avalanche airbag pack in action. This is from Loveland Pass. It is above an area that is known affectionately as Idiot's Cornice. <laughs> I'll point out when the avalanche occurs, point out when the person pulls a little strap and their airbag inflates. The idea behind an airbag is you become bigger than the chunks of snow around you. And much like a bowl of nuts at the holidays or a box of cereal with fruit in it, the big stuff rises to the top. So in the parlance of a bowl of nuts, you want to be a Brazil nut. <laughs> so this person's riding along. The avalanche curves right there. And you'll notice that they pick up speed here pretty darn quickly. And they're going super fast and probably thinking, how am I going to get off of this? They don't get off, but they yank their pack, and there's the orange balloon. And you'll notice that even in all that tumult and all that snow bouncing around, they stay on top the whole way. 
and look at it at the end, they do pop up. They're pretty amazing devices. They're great to have. They're expensive, but they're absolutely worth it. Now, yes, go ahead. Can you hold them more than once, or is it a one-use kind of thing? Typically, they're a one-use kind of thing. Most of them are fired by a compressed gas canister, and once you fill the balloon, that canister is empty. You can now buy different kinds that are driven by a battery-powered fan that have anywhere between 8 to 14 uses before you must recharge the battery. They're about twice the cost, but there's, there's value in that to some extent. So people that are caught, we'd save about half if everyone wore an airbag back that was caught and utilized it. Now, they're not a panacea. What happens if a second avalanche comes down on you after you've pulled your bag? Well, now you're going to be found with a transceiver, ideally. What about if you're skiing somewhere where your bag can be damaged and can no longer inflate? Ski a narrow chute, tree branch catches your bag after you've deployed it, bag goes away, you get buried. That has happened. It happened here in Colorado outside Telluride in the Bear Creek drainage. So they're not a panacea. They're great, but they, they are not a guarantee. What if you don't have a transceiver? This is truly your needle in the haystack moment. How would you search this entire area if someone didn't have a transceiver? 1986 Breckenridge at peak nine, no peak, what is now peak seven, before that was part of the ski area, four persons buried, only one had a transceiver. The three that didn't were located three, five, and six days later. So you want to have a transceiver. You want to be searchable. How about dogs? People know about rescue dogs? Virtually every ski area has them, and rescue groups have them. The rescue group for Jefferson County Alpine Rescue has search dogs. They're great, but how long does it take a dog to get to a scenario? So even in a ski area with chairlifts and snowmobiles, by the time an avalanche is sounded, you're still easily 10 minutes out. And remember our graph, 15 minutes is your maximum, more or less. What if you're in the backcountry? Dogs aren't going to get to you. So what if you're in the backcountry and a rescue group wants to come to you? Well, that's pretty weather dependent. Sometimes they can't fly. So it's critical you be your own rescuers. This gear does work. I have used this gear in anger, so to speak, to find people. But you have to practice. Avalanche scenes are scary, confusing, and absolutely terrifying. Everybody's running around going, I don't know what to do. There, there are processes in place, but your adrenaline takes over, and even the most calm people get pretty darn nervous. So have the gear in practice is very important. Get the training is the next step. This is your first step in training. This is not a class. This is merely awareness. This is an idea of what's out there. What could happen to you and how you can avoid it. To know more, various places like ARI, which is the uh, premier provider of avalanche education here in the US, and the American Avalanche Association, which is the umbrella organization in the United States for all things avalanche. These two websites are great resources to get started. You learn lots of things in a course. Some of it's a bit scientific, although science is de-emphasized. Most of this is based on making good decisions. 
you learn how to make decisions, do rescues, and we'll come to this one later, how you impact the safety of others, how you are part of a community. The other three parts, what things we do every day before we go out, <laughs> forecast, picture, and get out of harm's way. So let's talk about those. Get the forecast. In many states, particularly in the West, there are avalanche centers that provide forecasts for you. And the forecast, you can think of as the avalanche newspaper delivered to your door electronically every morning. You can have it sent via email. You can go look online. Colorado.gov slash avalanche is the Colorado Info Avalanche Information Center, one of the two oldest in the United States. Just up the road in Boulder at the, uh, at the NOAA buildings is where they are located, and they have forecasters all across the state. When you go get the forecast, you'll be shown a danger scale, and that is typically a one to five scale. You can look at it as perhaps like a stoplight, green meaning go up to red and black meaning stop. There's all sorts of verbiage in here about what the danger scales mean, but in essence, this is what it's all about. You'll also get a forecast that will tell you what is the problem today. So problem type, there are at least nine different problem types to consider. Those are broken down in general terms for you. Where the problem's been observed, aspect elevation, above tree line, at tree line, below, and how weather might affect your trip plan. Tomorrow's gonna be a great day to ride a bicycle. Is Thursday gonna be a great day to ride a bicycle outside? Doesn't like it. No, doesn't look like it. So. You get a weather forecast, and oftentimes there are pictures to show you what you might expect out there. So you'll have something visual, if you're a visual learner, to compare to. If you're more of a person who learns by, by words, there's that too. And then if you're a kinesthetic learner, you go out and put your hands in the snow and figure out what's going on that way. But this is where you start to get the forecast. Get the picture. Get the picture means pay attention. There are all kinds of signs out there telling you what's going on. So I'll ask you, do these tracks mean that the slope is safe to ski? Okay, so go ahead. There's an avalanche there. So there's ski tracks here, and here's a ski track, and it's covered by an avalanche. Now, did these, did these people make a great decision based on terrain and other factors and, and know that if it's going to slide, it might happen over here, so we'll ski over here? Or did this person ski and had no problem and the avalanche came later? We don't know any of that. This is a, an amazing negative feedback loop <laughs> that rarely gives you negative feedback, but when it does, it's severe. So the question you ask yourself is, are other, other tracks are not a sign of good decisions? Or as I've phrased it to other people before, tracks on a slope are not a sign of intelligent life. <laughs> They're not. You have to make your own decisions. Other people should not make them for you. So you said in that picture, look, there's an avalanche there. What is the most obvious sign of avalanche danger? Existing avalanches, especially if they happen naturally. If this just happened because of various reasons, somebody didn't trigger it, that is, that is nature screaming at you. You can go home today and go bowling. That's a better decision. So. Five red flags are obvious clues you can always think about to get the picture, to pay attention. The first one is recent avalanches on similar slopes. We've already seen a picture of that. Here's another one. 
if I'm thinking of skiing over here and I see this avalanche, well, I won't be going there today. Maybe this is a little different. Maybe this is a little different, but I'd probably err on the side of caution. Cracking or collapsing, here's a snow machine that's made that happen, but anything snowpack-wise that cracks or collapses, there's weakness there, and you've exposed it. It just hasn't come all the way down yet. So when you see this, that's another big warning sign. Wind-drifted snow. When you look at this picture, so the snow here, it didn't fall a whole bunch more here than it did right over there. This snow got moved by wind, and it made a gigantic chunk of strong snow, a big hard slab. And remember we talk about strong or hard over weak. Well, there, there you go. When you see wind-drifted snow, that's a big clue. Recent snow is also another clue. Just like wind deposits build up big slabs, new snow also build up big slabs of snow. They're typically softer, but that stress, it, it's, uh, you know, Atlas only stays up this way so long before the world gets too heavy. So new snow can also cause avalanches. And lastly, this usually happens in the spring, though in our current weather situation, it might be happening here sooner than later. Rapid thaw. When you see these snow rollers or these snowballs coming down the hill, things are getting really warm, and there's suddenly a lot of wet moisture in the snowpack. See, it's the kind of snow you grab, make a snowball real easily, and squeeze it, and water comes out. That water in the snowpack is eating it away from the bottom. Stuff collapses and runs down. So this, in the spring, is a real good uh, indicator of it's time for me to leave. Okay, how do we get out of harm's way? Well, we talked about terrain and what you're connected to. This avalanche, and that's a ski right there, and these are people. This avalanche began up here, and it ran all the way down to here. So this is what we would call the runout zone. So you need to make sure that you are not in harm's way. Usually that is at the bottom of the slope. So here's a couple pictures of that. This is from Canada. This avalanche began up here, ran downhill up and over this ridge, and buried a whole bunch of snow machiners who were watching their friends zip up and down here on their machines. This uh, multiple fatalities in this incident because they were not out of the way. Here's a couple skiers. In fact, this one here, this person's actually out of their skis. And here comes an avalanche. And look where they're standing. What are they connected to? These are simple things, simple pictures that give you an idea of what's going on, how to stay out of harm's way. Now, I talked about community and putting others at risk. Not only are you part of a backcountry community when you go and ski and ride in the backcountry, but you are part of a larger community as a whole. This is US 550 between Uray and Silverton. Backcountry skiers triggered an avalanche on a high hazard day where people were warned not to go in certain areas. This plow took seven and a half hours to clear the road. So people down here, they're not hurt, but they're extremely annoyed at best. Commerce suffers, it's, it's, it's not playing nice. This is an avalanche that hit a house in Missoula. This house sits near a slope that is off limits to people, yet someone decided to go ride it, caused an avalanche, and killed the inhabitant of the home. So you've got to know when you're putting others at risk. If you're just traveling in the backcountry, you see other groups, communicate and talk. We're going to go ski 
the postage stamp, okay, we'll stay over here on Hell's Half Acre kind of thing, if you're at Birthday Pass, so that you know where each other are going to be and you're not on top of each other bringing snow down on people that you don't want to hurt. So, to conclude, if you want to get the goods, and this is where the, the younger kids really like it because there's loud music that typically goes with this. <laughs> Five steps, get the gear, the training, the forecast, the picture, and get out of harm's way. And that's what I have for you tonight, and I will stick around for questions for as long as you'd like. All right, we will take a quick break. If you need some more beer, we still have some, or food, if you prefer, or both. Uh, just a quick note, so at the end of the video, there's a pro skier, I think, who says something like, uh, there are times when you go out there and Mother Nature just says, it's time to go home, and then there are other days where Mother Nature puts her arms wide open and says, come on out and party. So it's a really nice video. Anyway, get yourself a beer. We'll come back for Q&A here in a little bit. question as much as it was a statement, but uh, the young lady here in front said she only skis green runs in ski areas, so she doesn't need to have some of the equipment. Uh, generally speaking, that's true. Uh, I am one of those people that wears my transceiver all the time, even, uh, so the ski area at Lo well, Loveland Open Thursday, it's the worst conditions I've seen in forever. There's no way an avalanche is happening. <laughs> And I still put my transceiver on. I have a, a mantra that I follow, uh, in particular in the backcountry, which is uh, on at the car or off at the bar. I wear it all the time. I wear it all the time as a habit. Well, so I wear it as a habit so I won't forget it. And I have found ski partners in the bar before by walking in, turning on my transceiver, putting it, putting it on to search and find someone who's got one on so I know at least they're thinking about it. <laughs> yes, sir. So in, in the summer, when we want to ski these shoots up, up on uh, Trail Ridge Road or something, is there any danger of avalanches in the summer? The question is, are there, is there danger of avalanches in the summer on, in areas that hold snow for a long period of time? So uh, the example given was up on Trail Ridge Road or something like that. The avalanche danger, if there's enough snow to, slide, uh, to ride, there's enough snow to slide is another way to think about it. Uh, kids like rhymes, which is why I tend to, sp <laughs> to speak like that. Uh, more often than not, in the summer, you will not get freezes overnight. So the snow doesn't get a hard freeze. It remains soft, which means there's a lot of moisture in it all the time. And that moisture percolates through and breaks down the bonds in the snow to the point where it's very weak. So if you're going to ski it, you want to do that earlier in the day rather than later in the day. Or choose your terrain very carefully. So it's definitely possible people ski year-round. There's people that pride themselves on skiing every month of the year for some number of years. As I'm sure you feel the same way, I'm more interested in my bicycle than I am the snow at that time of year, but you can absolutely do it. Uh, as an aside, one of the ways that we help ourselves learn about wet 
slide avalanches is via stream gauges. So as someone who spends a lot of time on the river as well, I pay attention to stream gauges when they start to rise. I know I can start thinking about getting my boats out. I could also have to think about if there's enough water for the stream gauge to register, it means the pack is melting out from the bottom up and it's becoming hazardous to ski on. Uh, you may recall 2000, I believe it was 2006 or 7, there was an inbound slide at A Basin on Palavicini, which is typically huge bumps all year, that ran to ground and killed a skier in April, in a very warm year. So it's possible at any time, but definitely doable if you pay attention. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so the question is, I'm hiking somewhere and there's snow on the ground, but I'm on a trail, the trail's packed down. And there, I'm hiking on top of the snow and there are there's other features of snow around me. Is that a, is that a good idea, bad idea sort of situation? And you're in a basin. And you're, so you're in a basin, therefore it's what we would call a concave slope. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Two things, trails in the summer are not the same as trails in the winter. So let's say this next summer you go to Gray's and Tories and hike on these summer trails there. If you were to hike those trails in the winter, you'd be in an avalanche path pretty much the entire time. So for those of you that want to hike in the winter snowshoe, which is a great way to go out and enjoy the snow, the summer trails are not the winter trails. In your specific example, you're in an area where you want to think about what am I connected to? So much like the presentation talked about, I'm in this bowl and it's 20 degree slope, so unlikely to avalanche, but what's above me? And you gave the specific example of a cornice, which is created by wind. So wind, uh, snow being transported by wind builds a big lip yeah. of snow. They fall naturally all the time. They cause big avalanches. At the ski area, we purposefully try to trigger them. Uh, we try with uh, our feet first, which is usually an interesting exercise. But if you think about what you're connected to, and if you were to somehow make that break, or if it broke on its own, are you going to outrun it? And you're not. Yeah, that would just be it. Yeah. So that's so one of the two things we talked about in terms of consequence was steepness and terrain. And when snow is the question, terrain is the answer. You can avoid those types of things and still reach those nice ridges and up on the top by avoiding basins like that and sticking to ridge lines. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yes, sir. Is the RECO system much easier to find people? So the question is, is the RECO, pronounced RECO, uh, system easier to find people with as compared to say a transceiver. Okay. Uh, RECO is a passive device, so it's simply a small piece of electronics on your body somewhere. The person who will be finding you would be carrying uh, 
a box with a handle. The box is about half the size of my computer, not very big at all, and not much thicker. And sides fold out, and it sends a directional beam. These days, Recos also have an avalanche transceiver built in, so you get two for one. But Reco is directional. So if you're over there wearing Reco and you're buried, and I'm looking over here, and the way you use a Reco device is held tightly to your body, and you swing like this. You do not swing your arm, you swing your body so that you're always in the same plane of motion. I would have to be come find you directly to know you were there. With a transceiver, the signal is, uh, imagine uh, two elephant's ears, two big elliptical shapes emanating from your body. I can stand here pointing my transceiver that way, and I'll pick up a signal if you're wearing one. So most often transceivers are easier and faster, and because RECO devices are... Uh, the searching device is limited to search and rescue groups and ski patrols, generally. The general public doesn't have them. You can't buy one. So carrying that around is not, is not an option for you. So transceivers are your best bet as a member of the public, regardless, it's in area or backcountry. Now, having RECO is great. Uh, before RECO stopped selling the little glue-on chips, I bought a whole lot. And they're on every ski boot I own because it's very hard to take a ski boot off in an avalanche. Same with my wife and kids. They are not on skis or poles or any of that kind of stuff. But we do have them because we want to be searchable regardless of where we're at. Yes? So I, I see these new things that look like new technology to me, and um, I think I read about them a little bit. The big tube that has natural gas and oxygen in it, and it... Um, it's like an a air blast, and it's, it's placed in an avalanche area. Mm-hmm. And what is the So the question is, uh, devices that are placed in avalanche paths, usually a permanent installation that use an air blast to trigger an avalanche, what is that? That's called Gazex, G-A-Z-E-X, developed by a French company. Proven to work in Europe. Uh, as I was saying to Whitney earlier, most innovations in the avalanche world come from one of two places, Canada or Switzerland. The Swiss are federally funded, and they have a whole bunch of money, and they spend it. Gazex is a device that uh, creates an air blast above snow. If you were to create the blast inside of snow, snow is dense enough that even at 90% air can attenuate a blast signal so that it doesn't travel as far as an air blast, which is banging on top of a snowpack. So you have what amounts to a big metal horn that comes out of the ground, sits over the snow, and a mixture of oxygen and propane is ignited, and you get a big boom with a flash. You'll see these here now in Colorado on Loveland Pass and Bertha Pass. They are in use in Wyoming, in Montana, uh, Washington State, Idaho. I think that's it for the U.S., but they're all over Europe. How many are there are 11 stations on Loveland Pass. Uh, they were put in, the, uh, their first use was last winter, so the summer before that. Uh, the company that was hired to do the installation had to blast away a bunch of rock to set concrete foundations. Uh, flying a helicopter at that altitude and with the amount of weight you've got to bring in because the amount of concrete is a great deal of cubic yardage. Uh, so we 
I got to go watch this a fair bit, and rather than fly in a whole lot, the only parts that were flown in were the big horns. We used llamas to hump in most of the stuff, and then put it all together there. And th there's a there's a uh, a structure that contains the oxygen and propane mixture, and it's separate from the horn. And the gas is filled. It might have to be filled once during the winter, but typically there's enough up there that it'll last the entire winter. And one station provides coverage of all of them, or no, there's 11 on Loveland Pass, and the picture I showed you is of the, the area is called the Seven Sisters, seven distinct avalanche paths, and there are there's one in each path, and then four others to trigger common starting zones above multiple paths, and it saves uh, CDOT having to put a truck on the other side of the highway and shoot projectiles up there that usually work. Sometimes they don't detonate. Occasionally they've gone over the hill. <laughs> Which is unfortunate, but the main reason of moving away from those avalanches is uh, it's four seasons ago now, uh, you used to have to close the highway. So if you were working at the ski area, you couldn't get in if you were behind CDOT. And, and they are there at the crack of dawn and before, and they're ready to go the minute they can sight. Uh, we were the fourth car in line when the gun on the back of the truck exploded, the charge exploded in the breach, blew up the gun. Uh, the shrapnel from that gun, the, the trucks are parked like a T, the shrapnel from the gun this way went through the engine block of a, a big Dodge Diesel, through the cab, through the bed, and out the other side, as well as spreading like this. There were four injured individuals, one who is permanently crippled and has loss of hearing and doesn't work anymore because of that. It was fortunate that there were four ski patrollers hanging around and knew, knew enough first aid and could drive up to the ski area and get what we needed. Uh, but that kind of stuff's dangerous. If you put it up on the hill and you are and it's fired from the tunnel, you sit at the tunnel in a nice warm control room and you push a button. It's, yeah. Nobody's there. And if it goes across the road, that's okay because you've already closed the road right at the bend. So it removes people from the equation. It's a real good thing to have no people involved. So the question is, are howitzers still used for avalanche control? The answer is yes, but not in Colorado. Okay. So the guns still exist. You could actually still buy them. The ordinance is the problem. Buying the ordinance is not only very expensive, but it's not made anymore. It hasn't been for years. So when you buy it, you're buying stuff that was made literally tens of years ago. And you have no idea its current condition. It's certified to be usable, but I certainly wouldn't want to mess with it. Now, that said, um, Alta still uses a howitzer. There's still one at Alpine Meadows in California. There, there's probably others, but they're being phased out. Alta will stop using theirs after this season. Theirs sits uh, on the far right-hand side as you're looking at the ski area, and they shoot up at... Uh, Mount Baldy. From uh, yeah. Bridger Pardon? Bridger, Bridger does, doesn't surprise me. Uh, the, <laughs> so, so the the patrol director at Bridger Bowl is a, a longtime friend of mine. I just saw him in October when he came out here for a conference, and every time I go to Bozeman, I visit and stay with him. And he remembers those days. And he's grateful that he doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> you know, he doesn't like... 
Doug doesn't like the hand charges, let alone the large gun that, if it explodes, kills you. So those days are going away. There's easier, better ways to do this sort of thing. Even so, ski patrollers still take two-pound charges, put fuses in them, light the fuses, look at it to make sure it's... And then throw it. It's like the little boy playing with firecrackers, but the consequences are far greater. It's fun, though. (laughs) No, uh, so the question is, uh, we throw charges with ropes on them. Why is the rope on it? If we want to put a charge at a very specific place on a slope and we need to do it with a hand charge, we have a rough idea how many feet down it is from where we start. So we'll rope it, we'll toss it down, unlit, and decide that's where we want it. Mark where it is, where, how much rope is out, bring it back up, arm it, pull the fuse caps, and then chuck it. To that. To that, so it stops at that length. Sometimes when you throw these things, you end up with what's called a toe shot. Your charge rolls all the way down to the bottom, and it blows up at the bottom. And occasionally it works, but more often than not, it doesn't, and you just waste the charge. So, so if there's a if there's a dud, there are regulations. You must wait at least an hour before even thinking about going to get it. If at Loveland, if we have a dud, we leave it closed for the day, give it 24 hours to see what it'll do. Never had one blow up afterward, but then you got to go get them, and that's uh, you have no choice because it's Forest Service land, and they mandate you will not leave live explosives out there, and that's a live explosive. So then you have to go get it. And we play a card game to determine who goes. <laughs> we do. The game's called Fickle, and if you lose, you go. You had a question. Um, do you, I know you did when you were back, but do you wear that parachute much? The avalanche airbag? Yeah. yeah. The question is, do I wear an avalanche airbag when I'm skiing? Uh, the answer is almost all the time. In the ski area, most of the work I do that is not on the lower mountain uh, is up on what's called the ridge, so it's Continental Divide at Loveland, and everything below that is essentially avalanche terrain. And any time that it's one of my days to go up work there, I must carry an avalanche air backpack and I must wear it when I'm skiing. We don't require helmets, but we require that. If I'm working on the ridge, yes, they want us to have that bag because I'm in avalanche terrain at any given time. In the backcountry, yes, I wear one all the time without fail. Have you ever had one, like, inflate? I've never had to inflate one on purpose, no, and I don't want to. Uh, Not on purpose. Now, I've been caught in avalanches three times, all before airbag packs existed, twice in the backcountry, one in bounds. So it, uh, there, one time I wished I had the airbag back and I was, the thing just stopped after going about 20 feet and I felt pretty lucky about that. I was caught in a wet slide once at Loveland at the end of a day uh, following one of the lift uh, operators back to the bottom to make sure he got down. He went in front of me, nothing happened. I followed right behind him and the next thing I know I was sliding on a whole bunch of wet snow right at a lot of trees. And I was soaked from here down. But, you know, those things happen. Well, knowing, yes. what, knowing everything you know mm-hmm. about avalanches, what surprised you about those three 
Uh, the two that happened in the backcountry, one surprised me because it looked like an inconsequential slope. And we talked about steepness, 30 to 45. Well, if you look at a slope and it looks pretty mellow here and then it maybe looks a little steeper and then mellow at the top, and you take a slope angle device and put it on the snow and look at it and it says, oh, it looks like 28 degrees, that's no problem. But really, you're siding up a line that can't tell you what the undulations of the terrain is like. So you've got no idea where it gets really steep and where it levels out and then gets maybe steep again or something like that. And it was a very small area. It wasn't more than 40, 50 feet. And I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and went for a short little ride. That one surprised me. And the wet slide really surprised me. I had, this was in, it was in April, so I should have been thinking about it. But I'd been skiing that all day and nothing happened. So that negative feedback, nothing, 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 something. That's, that's what happens all the time. Was it luck or was I doing the right thing? More often than not, it's luck. That's the reality of it. Somebody over here had a question? Yeah, it was crazy that question. Okay. One thing is the Avalon. So you're asking about two things, uh, an airbag pack and an Avalon. So the, the airbag pack or the balloon pack is the big thing that comes up behind you and keeps you above. The Avalon is a device you wear, sort of like a sling or a bandolier. Yeah, and it has a mouthpiece you would put in your mouth, and out the backside is where you exhale. What you exhale goes out. Now, they're great. They work. They've been tested in various ways, and there have been burials where people have survived by wearing and using one of those. They were tested by bundling somebody up in a big 8,000-meter down suit, putting this on them, and burying them and leaving them there for an hour. And they could breathe. People that did this said, I had no trouble breathing. It was the, that sense of being closed in that really put the zap on my brain kind of thing. The trick with an Avalon is that mouthpiece has to be in your mouth. And when you're getting tumbled all over the place and your body's going in six different directions, are you going to be able to grab a mouthpiece and stick it in your mouth and keep it there? And the answer to that is probably no. So the way you use it is to put it in your mouth before you start. When, before you start skiing. So you're skiing with this thing in your mouth, and quite honestly, when you're breathing and skiing with that in your mouth, you sound like a goose honking. So nobody puts it in their mouth. You get all these people wearing it, and there's the mouthpiece flopping around. So they're useful. I own one. I don't use one because I don't think I can get it in my mouth. Now, the airbag pack, big T-handle, super easy to grab with a mitten or a glove. Give it a yank. And it doesn't take much to make it activate. So it's not like you're ripping a parachute cord. It's just a small pull and boom, it goes. It's much easier to use. Yes? Do you still teach to make a cavity around your... And the question is, do we teach, try to make an air pocket around your mouth if you're caught? And the answer is yes, we do. Uh, when the snow is, what we tell people, when the snow is coming to a stop and you can feel yourself slowing down, try to make a space around your mouth. 
So how easy is that to do? Not very easy, but there is a trick that does tend to work. And that is with one of your free hands, you grab the pack strap opposite that arm and just bury your head in the nook of your elbow. And more often than not, you'll get a little space around your face. It does work. People have said it works. But there's a lot of conscious thought that's got to be going on in a very compressed time period where you're panicked beyond compare. Yeah. <laughs> it is claustrophobic. We, uh, we, have, we have two avalanche dogs at Loveland. We have a third that will be coming online in another year or so. To train those dogs, we dig holes. We dig them between 8 and 10 feet deep and put a pad down there and somebody goes in the hole and then we cover the hole. And then whatever the hole got covered with gets covered with more snow. So the dog has to truly work to find your scent. And you lay in these holes and you wait for the, you, you love it when the dog's nose comes through the hole. And even though that hole is big and I, I, I go in the hole all the time because I like being in there, it actually gets warm. It, you're, you're, you're kind of laying on your back. You're at a, sort of like a, you might read in bed or something like that. You're still looking around, going, "This is really, this is really dumb," but it's fun. So it is claustrophobic, very much so. Thank you so much. You're very welcome.